Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. This is God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word, church. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Praise God. You may be seated. I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. God, this is your word. And sometimes it's hard for us to see how it fits with our life. But we know that through your spirit working in us, you guide us into your word and you apply ancient words to new lives so that we may move forward in our faith, so that we may built up, be built up in our faith. God, that we may know what it is that we're supposed to be striving for. Because you've, you've left us here for a reason and we know it's to bring you glory, and we just want to know how to do that. So would you, would you show us in your word how it is that we're to bring you glory, how, we, how we're to communicate with you and with others, and what, what the Christian life maturing looks like. Move me out of the way this morning, Father, as your word speaks to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said to you at the very beginning, what we do is we walk through the Bible together, and, and so more than ever today, I want to make sure that you know you've got to have your Bibles open to understand what's going on, okay? Um, so if, if you think that you can, you can grasp what we're doing just by taking notes, it's not going to happen. You've, you've got to be looking at the Bible, because all I'm doing is taking a verse and saying, this is what that means. This is what that means in our lives, and so that's what we do. So I would encourage you uh, to, to grab that copy of God's Word we are at the, the end of chapter 3, moving into chapter 4 of Colossians. And, and we can see this morning's text is basically a close to all that we were studying back in chapter 3. Be beginning back to, in chapter 3, verse 5, if you look there, and all the way, you move all the way from there to chapter 4, verse 6 in Colossians. It's just this one long encouragement of who we are to be in Christ. Paul, Paul's been explaining to us that, that Christ should be seen in our daily lives by others. He should be seen in our churches and in our homes and in all we do. Because the reality of the Christian life is that we are being renewed in the image of Christ. For some of you, and I know this because you've told me, this has been encouraging to you. you. You've been built up by these encouragements from God's word because you are experiencing your life being shaped by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. And I want you to know that has been my prayer for you as a church. For others, though, I know that this is, this is kind of like a foreign language. 
you see the, these, these highfalutin commands. They seem super spiritual, and it, it, it's like jargon. It's like listening to, to a doctor talk to another doctor. It's not helpful to you. You think maybe, well, this is only for a certain group of, of Christians, maybe elite Christians, not plain old Joe, regular Christians. So you look at all these commands that, we, that we've looked at in chapter 3, and you say, no, that's impossible. That's, those are impossible for me to obey. And so you just don't even bother trying. And you hope that Jesus will, you know, hope, just forgive you anyway. Right? That, okay, well, maybe I can't live the Christian life, but I'm just going to bank on forgiveness. It's not, it's not that outlandish to respond that way to difficult instruction. Think about, all of you, think about the commands that, that we've been given in chapter 3. Put to death sexual immorality and impurity and, and passion and evil desire and covetousness. We saw that back in verse 5. And we, we hear that and we think, yes, that's the Christian life. But then we think about it. And we, we know we can't root out all of those things in our lives on our own. If we remove, this is who we are as, as humans. If we remove one object of desire, it's gone. What takes its place? Another object of desire. And we take that away and another one takes its place. Our hearts... On their own, they are their little, their little factories that are constantly creating and searching out new things to put our affections on. And it doesn't get easier as we keep going down the, these lists of, of, of ways, marks of Christians. Look at verse 8 as we've continued in chapter 3. It feels unnatural, doesn't it, to put away all anger and wrath and malice and slander and it's obscene talk. Obscene talk. It's these vices, these are how we communicate in a fallen world. How, what do we do if we put all of these things away? We'd just be the weird people. We, the positives are just as hard as we've continued from, from that group of vices in verse 5 to the group of vices in, in verse 8. And then we go down to verse 12 and we think, okay, what is the turn? We're turning away from this way of life towards what? Look at verse 12 compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Those aren't, those aren't natural human traits, are they? We, we can't always be putting those things on. Sometimes forgiveness feels impossible. We know it's hard to bear with difficult people. They bring out all of those vices in us in verse 5. It's hard to bear with difficult people. It's hard to love unlovable people. And then we keep going down to verse 18 and it just gets harder. It feels impossible to reflect Christ in my marriage and all that I do. To, to be a shepherd to my kids. To endure suffering and work as though I were working for the Lord. That's hard for me as a pastor. I know it's hard for you in, in, in secular uh, callings, vocations. And there's a reason. There's a reason why all of these instructions to us feel so difficult. It's because they're not just difficult, they're impossible in the flesh. And so if we don't have something that we are looking to that comes before these instructions, from 3.5 all the way to 4.6, then we end up in despair. Why? 
Well, because I'm a sinner. I'm here in the flesh with the same nature. That hasn't changed, it seems like. I have the same upbringing that I had before I began to, to believe that this Jewish guy in the Middle East died on a cross and rose again three days later. And even if I make some abstract connection between that man's death and God's forgiveness of my sin, how does that change who I am? But think about what's supposed to take place. Forgiveness somehow changes who we are. How does believing that somebody dying in history could actually change anything about who I am now? All that does is create in me a feeling of guilt when I sin. But what if the gospel, what if the gospel is not simply that that Jesus died for my sin like paying off my, my mortgage or my credit card debt? What if Jesus' death accomplished more than that? What if he actually took not just my sin, but my sin nature to the cross with him? And in exchange, he gave me power over sin. What if that happened? Wouldn't that make more of a difference? If our old nature is gone, it's gone. And we actually have what Christ had when he walked on the earth then we could put to death all of those vices in verses 5 through 9. If we have what Christ had, then we can exhibit these virtues in verses 12 through 17. And in fact, friend, I want you to know that is the full message of the gospel. That has been the thrust of Paul's message in Colossians from chapter 1 onward. The gospel is not just that Jesus Christ removes the taint of sin from our lives. He, in fact, through his death, he removed the power of sin over us. It's mastery over us. Through Christ's death, we are redeemed from our slavery to sin. That's the good news. That that nature in us, that bit of us that was always thinking and lusting after things that are contrary to God's will, that has been removed by Christ's cross. And who it's been replaced with is the Holy Spirit. That is absolutely foundational to living the Christian life. And it's necessary. It's necessary. Or else we could never ever follow these, these instructions in chapter 3. That's, that's why we say that a Christian is someone who has been born again. That's not just lingo. That, that actually means something. We are born again into a, a new life. That's why we say that, that a Christian is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Are you seeing how those ideas connect to a new nature and, and the ability to follow Christ? That's why Paul could say back in Colossians chapter 2, I hope you still have your Bibles open. Look at, look at Colossians 2.11. This is a little bit of review over the past several weeks. Colossians 2.11. In him, that's in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
putting off the flesh. That means our old flesh nature has been removed by Christ. Gone, it's, it's removed. How did that happen? Keep going. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were buried, Christian. The old nature has been buried. It's gone. It's under the ground. It's been killed by the Spirit's work in you, made possible by Christ's work for you, according to God's will from before time began. Keep going. In which you were also raised with him. So your old flesh is gone. It's dead. And you are raised with him, with Christ, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. It's not just forgiven. It's made alive. It's new life that's been brought to bear. The gospel is not just that God has forgiven you. It's that he has made us alive with Christ. Our flesh was crucified and buried with Christ, and we've been raised new in Christ. In, in Zambia, in Lusaka, a, a city I've had the opportunity to, to spend time with Christians there on a, a few occasions, Lusaka is the capital city. And like, like many countries... With crowded, poor cities, there are these, these slums. And people, they live there in these little tin and wood and, and fabric shacks. The fabric is, is like feed bags. Those are their walls. And they live in all of these little shacks, these all crowded together. And they're sharing walls. One, one wall is shared by the next home over. Usually in these shacks, there's just... Two, two rooms. One is a bedroom where everybody sleeps and one is sort of a living room where, where you do everything else. You eat and uh, cook and host and lounge. There's no bathrooms. There's no, there's no kitchens. And, and the people who live there, they rent these homes from a slumlord. Usually he's, he's a wealthy landowner that owns acres and acres and acres there and he will put thousands and thousands of these little homes squished together on, on one small plot of land. There's no zoning, zoning requirements. The, the more shacks he can fit on this plot of land, the more income he gets, right? It's, it's economics. The people that live in these slums, they're, they're usually moved, they've moved there from the villages. So they, they see that if I move to the city, then I can get rich, I can make it. Back in the villages, they were subsistence farmers, and so their, their existence, their life was dependent on, on the weather, on whether or not their crops would grow. And they got, get tired of that, move to the city. Somebody tells them they can make it big. And once they get to the city, they realize the only thing they can afford is to live in one of these, these shacks in the slums. And then they get stuck. So here they are in these filthy cities within cities. And they struggle to pay their rent. And they struggle to eat. And the water is dirty. Water is scarce. And disease spreads like, like wildfire through these communities because there's no sewer. And there's no sewage system. Human waste just goes 
from the, the holes in the ground into the ditches, and the ditches go into the creeks, and then those creeks are the same places where people bathe. I think sometimes we say that the gospel is like Jesus has paid off our debts so that we can just continue to live in places like these slums debt-free so long as we pay our rent from here on out. And if we're really reformed, then if it, that's the, the Catholic version. If, if we follow the, the evangelical version, we might be so bold as to say that he's made it so we can live there in those places rent-free the rest of our lives. Hey, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. God has delivered us. He has delivered us from that slummy, sin-disease-ridden domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's not that just, it's not we don't owe the slumlord anything anymore. He's not our Lord anymore. Jesus is. We live in his kingdom now, and in his kingdom we have been given his, his body, and we have been given his spirit so that we can live as citizens of that kingdom. And how, how do we know that, though? How do we know that and believe that that's true when we look around us and we see we're still in the flesh? We still see brokenness around us. We still smell the rotten smells of slum life. How in the world can it somehow be true that we're really in Christ's kingdom and not actually in the old slummy domain of darkness? Look closely at Colossians 2, verse 12. How do we access this new reality? We were raised with him through what? Through faith. We were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. That's key. Do not miss that word. That's what faith is. It's not just believing that God exists. If, if you believe that saving faith is simply believing that God is real, you do not have saving faith. Demons believe that God is real. Saving faith is not simply believing that Jesus died as some mystical ticket to heaven. Saving faith is not simply believing that Jesus of Nazareth is God. Saving faith is believing that because of the power of Christ's work on the cross, your old nature has been destroyed. And now you live in Christ. And you are reconciled to God. That is the only faith that can rightly be called saving faith. And that kind of faith, to believe something that you can't see, something you can't feel, something that seems impossible, that kind of faith only comes from God himself. And this is why this morning's text is so vitally important. There's a reason why Paul ends Colossians the way that he does. Paul knows, just like all of us know, that the faith to believe 
that we are really and truly unified with Jesus Christ, that faith is not easy to lean on, is it? Be honest. That is not an easy faith to lean on. We can't see that. So what do we do? Well, Colossians 4.2 gives us instruction. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Why is this necessary? Because if we're not praying, if we're not begging God to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our confidence in the unseen reality of who we are in Christ, if that's not our prayer, then we will lean on something else. We'll lean on ourselves. We'll we'll lean on experience. And in ourselves, we will resort to these old habits, the old ways that made slum life easier and more comfortable. And when that happens, who we are in Christ begins to fade away like a Marty McFly Polaroid selfie. just goes away. Watchfulness, some of you just got that. (laughs) Watchfulness in prayer is this. It's it's communicating to God these areas in in our lives where you don't see evidence of Christ's ownership. So we're watching in prayer, we're looking, and we see, Christ, you don't own this area of my life yet. The Holy Spirit has not rooted out this part of my life yet. And what do we need? We need him. So we ask him for it. It's it's being watchful of those things. Because you are in Christ, and you know that God is reconciling all things to Christ, you want to see Christ rule in everything And so you ask God to let that happen. So let's think about some of these these instructions we've had in chapter 3. So if you're a husband and you're finding it incredibly difficult to love your wife, what is watchfulness and prayer? Watchfulness and prayer is asking God to work in you so that you can love your wife sacrificially. If you're a wife and you find yourself resenting your husband, what is watchfulness and prayer? It's, It's seeing Seeing to it that 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 lack of Christ-likeness in your heart is rooted out and is begging God, God, help me grow in this. I want to reflect Christ in my life. If you're a child who is struggling to obey your parents, watchfulness and prayer is recognizing, it's watching for where Christ is not reigning, where he's not ruling, and it's confessing that to God and asking the Spirit's help. That's watchfulness and prayer. If you're a Christian who longs to see those, those virtues in your life, compassion and kindness and humble and meekness, humility and meekness and patience, if you're looking to forgive and you can't, watchfulness and prayer is seeing, God, I, for some reason, am finding it incredibly difficult to be compassionate with this person. I'm finding it incredibly difficult to forgive this person. And you're asking God to help you in that. In in treating him to ensure that that your union with Christ begins to show in every area of your life. And And we do that with thanksgiving, 
because we are thankful that we, we really and truly, by the grace of God, we really are in Christ. And so something magnificent can and should be happening. And we ask him to make it happen. We thank God. With thanksgiving, we thank God that in his mercy, he saved us. He saved us from what? From our hostility toward him. And we ask him to let the peace of Christ, the peace with God, that God's provided for us in Jesus Christ, we ask him, let that dwell in us. Let that dwell in us richly. Let that shine in us. So when Paul says to continue steadfastly in prayer, he's attaching that command to all that we've studied previously. Because continuous prayer is the only way that we can walk in Christ. If you're writing things down, write that down. Continuous prayer is the only way that we can walk in Christ. Why? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. And where does faith come from? It comes from God. And so who do we ask for faith? God. Did you see this? How it all kind of makes sense and why Paul would order things in this way? I think one of the bad prayer habits that we've gotten into as Christians is praying more for physical healing than for our own maturity in Christ. There's a number of reasons for this. One of it's just habit. This is how we've been taught to pray, and so this is how we pray. Another is, is these, these demonic healing ministries we see on television. If you're watching those shows on TBN or CBN or Daystar, I want to be clear with you, because I'm your shepherd. Those people, men and women, are leading you away from Christ, and they are misrepresenting the gospel, and God's word. And as your shepherd, I need you to know that these TV healing ministries are demonic and those people leading them are poisonous snakes. Do not let them into your home. I think another reason why we pray more for physical healing than for spiritual maturity is that we simply don't know how desperately we need to grow in Christ. We we feel physical pain, right? And so we know something's wrong here. I want this to go away. We don't always feel our spiritual sickness. We can't always feel the spiritual mess that we're in. We just get used to it and say that's normal. That's slum life, right? Part of this is that we don't read God's word. And if we don't read it, then we don't know where we're supposed to be as Christians, as as people maturing in Christ. And we've misunderstood the gospel to be just this doorway into, I don't know, when really the gospel is this, this lifestyle that we're to walk in. That's why the command is walk in Christ, not walk through a door. Walk in Christ. It's a lifetime. It's a lifestyle, and it requires prayer all the time. So look to God's Word. Reread Colossians. I think you'll see that, that we absolutely require continuous strength from God 
to live in the kingdom of Christ. Because this life is one that is lived out only through faith in the power of the Spirit. And those things we ain't got. Those things come from God himself. So what do we do? We continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer in accordance with the word. The point of verse 2 is that when we pray for ourselves, our prayer should be that Christ's work for us would be seen also as Christ's work in us. So it's not just historical, it's now. That, that by the resolve of faith and the Spirit's power, our minds and our hearts would truly show that we have been and are being renewed in Jesus Christ. And so from there we move into verse 3, Colossians 4, 3. And beginning in verse 3, we begin to see that the Christian life isn't just lived out internally, though, but it's also external. Our lives, our prayers, rather, shouldn't just be for ourselves. Paul says in verse 3, at the same time, what's he saying? He's saying, in other words, while you're watchfully praying that your faith would be strengthened, he says, pray also for us. He's talking about him and Timothy, the guys that are with him. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Look what Paul's asking for. Remember, remember his setting, okay? He's in prison. And look at what he's praying. Look at his prayer request to this church. Does he say, ask God to open up these prison doors so that I can get out? No, that's not his prayer. He's trusting that God has got him in those circumstances for a reason. And so his request is not that the prison doors would be opened, but that the hearts of those around him would be opened to the gospel. That's what he's asking for. He's asking that, that he, as an apostle, as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, he's asking that he'd be watchful for these opportunities to share the gospel. He's looking for those open hearts, those open doors. And then he's asking that when he does share the gospel, that it wouldn't just be a tract left on the person's doorstep. He's asking that it would be clear to the person listening, isn't it? That they would understand what he's trying to say to him. And I, I think our tendency is to just take this for granted. We say, well, that's just, that's just Paul. That's just Paul. He's an apostle. That was his fate. He asked for that. He signed up for that. Of course he'd be that way. But pause for a moment and just, just let this sink in. Even if it is just Paul, which it's not, but even if it is, think about Paul for a moment. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't fiction. This is historical truth. And it, it points to the reality of Paul's redemption in Christ. He has been transformed by the power of the gospel. And there's evidence even in even in his words here. How do we know that? Well, well, what does the flesh want to do in his circumstances? What would you want to do in Paul's circumstances? You give up on the faith, for one. That's the easiest thing. Step one, give up on the faith. All, all this message does is cause trouble everywhere Paul goes. Even before he came to Christ, this message was causing trouble. And then he comes to Christ, and this message continues to cause trouble. And so if you're looking at it from worldly eyes, 
give up, right? The other option is to, to get angry, to get vindictive. He's been unjustly tried, or not even tried yet. He's in, he's in prison without a trial. It's, everything that has happened to him is unjust. I, I would get angry. I would get vindictive or despair or something not what Paul is doing. What is Paul doing with his time? He is showing evidence of his redemption. In prison, he's growing in his confidence in Christ. What does that tell us? That despite our circumstances, we can grow in confidence in Christ. He's sharing the gospel with everybody who comes his way. And and he's writing these letters to these churches. It's during this time, during Paul's imprisonment, that he writes to the Philippian church. He writes to the Ephesian church. He writes to the Colossian church. He writes his letter to Philemon. And while, while he's writing these things, he's asking that these churches would pray for more gospel opportunities. <laughs> the nerve of him. <laughs> Why? Because he knows, like he says in, in 2 Timothy 2.9, Paul knows this truth. Though he is in chains, God's word can never be bound. He knows that truth. So to the Colossians, he's praying for open doors to the gospel. To the Ephesians, he says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. To the Philippians, he tells them how God has answered all of those prayers that the Colossians and the Ephesians had. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's buying back the time that was taken from him. And he's seizing it for the glory of Christ. Now, is that just Paul? Is the type of confidence in Christ only for those who are apostles? Or is that just what maturity in Christ looks like? That's maturity in Christ. This is where all of us should be heading if we're growing in Christ. This is the type of confidence, this is the type of of mission-mindedness that should always be on the forefront of our thoughts. For one, because we've continued steadfastly in prayer, right? And we're beginning to see God's desires for what should be taking place around us. That is the point of all the progress that we've seen in Colossians from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. I think we can learn from Paul that despite our circumstances, in prison or free, slave or free, single, widow, married, rich, poor, old, young, no matter what your circumstances, if you are in Christ, then growing in Christ is growing in the ways that you reflect your union with Christ. And that starts with what you believe about who Christ is, and it flows into your values and your priorities, it flows into your works, and it comes out in your words. And we know that this type of confidence in the Lord isn't just for apostles because we have verse 5. Look at verse 5. 
Colossians 4, verse 5. He's talking to all the Colossian Christians here, everyone who claims the name of Christ in this church, and I believe it applies to us too. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walking in Christ, Christians, we're to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Outsiders means those outside of Christ. Get your, the prepositions are important here. In Christ, outside of Christ. In Christ, we walk in wisdom towards those outside of Christ. We're to have a constant, constant awareness that in all we do, we're representing the one that we're walking in. Word or deed. Outsiders are watching and listening. One of the most annoying songs that we ever sang as kids is, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. <laughs> For the Father up above is watching down with love. It's not just annoying, it's actually unbiblical. As if by our avoiding sin as little kids, we could seize a hold of righteousness and win God's approval just by our good behavior. That's a terrible message. That's Islam, right? It's not Christian. Our loving Father up above has given us Jesus Christ to be our righteousness, hasn't he? And so we live out our lives in Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God and that's the gospel. If we're, if we're going to keep that song in our repertoire, here's how we need to change the words. And, and we're going to get it in accordance with Colossians 4, okay? Be careful, little Christian, because the world is watching you and you represent Christ. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little fingers, what you type on Facebook. Be careful who you endorse for public office. Be careful who you accept into church membership. Be careful how you respond to sin. Be careful how you respond to injustice. Why? Because all the world around you is watching without love. Oh, be careful, little Christian. Walk in wisdom. It's not quite as jazzy. That's why I'm not a songwriter. But it, it's certainly more biblical than the old version. Listen, right, wrong, or indifferent, our faith is being examined by the world around us. Next election, coming up, what will the polls say? This many evangelicals did this. The world is watching. And so with a watching world, we have to know that we are constantly, constantly under that fishbowl examination. And that requires wisdom. We have to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And the way we do that is we make the best use of our time. The old King James says, redeem the time. I like that. Redeem it. Every second that passes is a second closer to our own death and our neighbor's death. One of the ways that, that artists during the Reformation would symbolize this reality is that they would often put a skull somewhere in the painting. Be, he'd be hidden. It's like, where's Waldo's skull? And it seems, seems morbid to us, but a skull hidden in the painting would, would illustrate the reality that death is coming. Death is coming. 
It's their way of saying in every circumstance, even in beauty, there is always this pending reality of death. We forget that sometimes, don't we? Those of you in your 50s and 60s, you remember your 20s like it was yesterday. And what you forget is tomorrow you'll be in your 80s, right? All flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Our life is a breath, isn't it? I have this belief that that we've been assigned only so many heartbeats. That's why I ride a motorcycle, I believe. (laughs) I only get so many heartbeats. Sometimes I think some of you in your 90s, as I've interacted with many of you, you figured out how to take a reverse mortgage on heartbeats. (laughs) And I'm, I'm figuring you either borrowed heartbeats from your kids, as your kids would testify to, or you know something else that I don't know, right? See, while we are waiting here on earth, we're waiting on Christ's return, or we're waiting on our own death, whichever comes first. And we are expected to redeem the time, to buy it back as it's slipping away. And what do we do with our time then? Well, Paul gives his instruction there too. Part of the command to redeem the time, to buy back the time, is connected to our awareness of outsiders. This is all a part of one big idea. Be wise in the way you walk towards, walk, uh, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Confusing command. And then be aware of those outsiders. Make the most of every moment you have with them. The assumption there which is a bold assumption, is that we are actually spending time with outsiders, Christians. We aren't so busy being busy. We aren't so busy entertaining ourselves or accumulating wealth that we neglect our witness to non-Christians. Think about how you came to Christ. God placed some other Christian in your life, didn't he? And and he did that to see to it that you would hear the gospel from that person. And here you are now, a disciple of Christ, and God is constantly, constantly putting you in the paths of people who also need to hear that gospel. It's no accident. It's no accident that God gave you the neighbors that he gave you. It's no accident that you, a citizen of Christ's kingdom, have been put in very, very close proximity to those who are in the domain of darkness. The last counsel that that Paul gives us is, is that in every moment we do have with these outsiders, that we will be around, we're to make every word count. Every word should count. Look at verse six. It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Think about that. That that was really kind of a complicated sentence, a a command. It's probably one of those things that would be easier to understand if we were in that time period. But we can work our way through it. In what way does grace-filled, salty speech know how to answer each person? How does that connect? He's talking about this. He's talking about how our message should engage those who are listening. Our message has, has got to engage in. That means our tactics, our tactics in evangelism are going to change with the time. Our message will not change. 
Don't ever think that making the gospel relevant means changing the gospel. If I or even an angel comes to you with a different gospel, let him be accursed. Praise God. Our message, our message, the gospel of Christ does not, has not ever, and will not ever change. It will never change until Christ returns. But the way that it answers the questions people have is always changing. We shouldn't be answering 1950s questions in 2018. The gospel's still here, the gospel's still the same, and the gospel applies. We should be thinking what's happening in culture. How does the gospel bear into the Kavanaugh hearings? How does the gospel relate to hashtag me too? How does, how does the gospel re- relate to Black Lives Matter? And I don't mean how do your politics answer those questions. That would be an unwise way to act towards outsiders. The question is, how does the gospel speak to the value of women? How does the gospel speak to those who are minorities that feel oppressed? How does the gospel come to bear when yet another earthquake and tsunami hit Indonesia and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people die? Do we as Christians have more to offer than thoughts and prayers? I think we do. How does the gospel speak to people who believe that they are born attracted to people of the same sex? How does the gospel relate to transgender stuff? What about immigration? How about this? How how do we speak the gospel to someone who doesn't understand what sin is? Our tactics have to change, don't they? How do we speak the gospel to someone who doesn't believe that sin exists? What if they believe that all roads lead to heaven? What if they believe that the Bible is just good advice? Just good advice. How do you make the Bible authoritative to them? What if they believe that the Bible is bad advice? How does the Bible speak to someone who thinks that it's garbage? Grace-filled, salty speech first knows the gospel. I don't want to overlook this. You should be reading your Bible to the point that you are aware of the many, many, many tiny facets of the beauty of the gospel. You know the beauty of the entire diamond and you know how to study it. You know who we are as creatures and what we're created for. You know who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he came and what he accomplished and you know what he's doing now. You know who the Spirit is and what His role is. You know who the Father is. You you know what it means that He is love, that He is holy, that He is righteous, that He is jealous, that He is just, but He's also merciful. And all of those attributes are perfected in Him. And that's glorious to you because you've read your Bibles. We have to know what the grace of God is if we're going to be gracious in our speech, don't we? Gracious, salty speech is also knowing people well enough to know how the gospel addresses their situation. You know their background because you know them, you've talked to them. You know their hopes, you know their failures, you know their doubts, you know their questions, you know the things they do believe, you know the things they don't believe. That means we have to learn how to listen to people. Think about 
Think about in the Bible how Paul addressed the Athenians differently than he addressed the Philippian jailer. And he addressed both of them differently than the way that he and Stephen and Peter addressed the Jews. See, all of these guys, they first knew their audiences, and they were confident that the gospel spoke to each of those situations. The gospel is the same. But the saltiness of the gospel, the saltiness adapts to the flavors that are present in each situation. Put salt on chocolate. It tastes different than when you put salt on chicken. And that tastes different than when you put salt on a cucumber, doesn't it? It's still salt. The salt doesn't change. It's still sodium chloride, but how it tastes, what it brings out, it changes from situation to situation. So we are to know Christ's gospel and know our neighbors so that we can love our neighbors so that Christ may be glorified in their lives. Salty and gracious speech. Christian, I want to close with this. As we, as we grow in our faith and as we grow in Christ together, we're going to see more and more of those areas where Christ is not reigning as king. But we want him to. We want him to because he's our king. We're going to, to long for that. We're going to long with the spirit in us to see that all things are reconciled to Christ. We're going to want that in our lives. We're going to want that in the lives of others. That is Christian maturity. That is a life that is walking in Christ. And that's the message of Paul's letter to the Colossians.